0: Everyone, this is Amanda Borchel-Dan. And I'm Jessica Steinberg. Your host for Times Will Tell. A weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. Hi, welcome to this week's Times Will Tell. We're here today with Daniel Sivan, who with his work and life partner, Mor Lushi, directed the new animated Netflix short film, Camp Confidential. America's Secret Nazis, which was recently shortlisted for the Best Documentary Short Oscar. Final nominees will be announced on February 8th, just a few days from now. The 35-minute film premiered on Netflix on September 24th. Camp Confidential is the latest of really many Lucy Sivan documentary collaborations to explore Jewish history. Their previous films have dealt with subjects such as the Oslo Accords, The Six-Day War, and The Legacy of AIPAC. Daniel Sivan, hello. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Or oh, me. <laughs> yes, very excited to have you. And congratulations on being shortlisted for the Oscars. What has that been like? A whirlwind?
1: <laughs> I, I mean, it's fantastic. It's it's really great. But really, I mean, it, it sounds cheesy, but the biggest prize is really having people talk about this short, because, you know, short documentaries have, you know, the possibility of just evaporating into space and never be talked about. So the fact that we're nominated is causing all the more interest. So that's that's just fantastic.
0: Now, remind me about something. As far as I know, this is your first short. Is that true? Um,
1: like, I've done a, a short documentary, but it was 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, um, and it was fun going back to, to this short format. it's, it's really is something. Because it, it gives you the possibility to just tell a story without stopping to take a breath. It's just out there.
0: Ah, that's interesting. It's, in a sense, a reverse of what... So, tell us, why, why did you guys decide to make Camp Confidential as a short maybe that would help me understand the the
1: concept a little bit more so it all started from these two young jewish austrian producers who approached us and i was just wrapping up the devil next door which is a docu-series for Netflix about Ivan the Terrible, John Demianuk. And when they approached us with this story, the first reaction was, I I can't deal with another documentary about the Holocaust, because it really takes such a toll as as a filmmaker, because, you know, as audience or viewers, you see a 90-minute film or, you know, five one-hour episodes, but as a filmmaker, you just sit there day after day in the room with images from Treblinka going back and forth, back and forth, looking for that one shot you're looking for, and slowly it goes into your nightmares and haunts you. And I said, like, no, I, I, I need to do something else. I need a break. Yes, it's it's you know, it was three years of just you know living these stories and testimonies and it's tough. And then they told us like, yeah, but you know, our, our doc, it's like, it's about this camp and it was in DC. And I was like, wait a sec. Like, what, what do you mean in DC? I- in Washington, DC. I'm just reminding our listeners about that. Yeah. <laughs> because really this whole concept of German prisoners of war, like you never hear anything about on American soil. Like it's always You know, back in Europe, in displaced persons camps, it's never on American soil. And then when we heard about the fact that these are Jewish guards, young Jewish refugees that were in charge of them, it just blew us away. And uh, immediately we said, like, okay, this must be told. And listening to the stories and listening to these audio recordings, We said, we don't know if it can really be a long documentary because a long documentary must give all these different, you know, insights and twists and turns. But it it must be also backed by people who are telling the story. And here we had only these recordings of people who have already passed away and these two survivors,
0: Camp Confidential is the story of a group of Jewish American veterans whose sole experience of World War II was guarding this secret Nazi POW camp on American soil in Washington, D.C.
1: Yeah, so the two veterans, really like, they were 94, now they're 96, both of them. And we really wanted to tell the story as in one testimony, without having experts or historians or journalists giving their part of it, but just a one-person, very intimate experience. And we said we would rather have it like as a 40-minute block, just as a punch in the stomach, than opening it up and having different perspectives and different people talk about it and see the years go by but just go with that one experience of these boys going into the army, joining and finding themselves, guarding their biggest perpetrators, and then slowly not only interrogating them, but actually recruiting them. Then there's this other
0: aspect of it, and I've seen this, I've seen the film now a few times, is the use of
1: animation. How did that all come about? So, I mean, you know, immediately when you hear about a documentary what is so beautiful about documentaries is, you have no actors, you have no recreations. It's just it is what it is, and it's always better than reality, because I mean, sorry, I mean the reality is always better than any kind of fictional recreation.
0: Right. I was trying. I was wondering if you actually did mean that. Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> because I mean, for example, you know, I, I recently. Did a documentary about a bridge player who is accused of cheating. Um, it was a Showtime documentary called "Dirty Tricks," and this and this character of Lowton, which is just a bigger-than-life hustler, and his interaction with his foul. Like if you would, you know, script it, you would never create as big characters as you can with documentaries. I mean, like Sheftel, the lawyer from the, the Demian trial, he's so extravagant and over the top. You would always like, you know, take a step back and tone yourself when you do, you know, a scripted film. So for me, documentaries are always more exciting because they're always over the top. Um, and here, again, I mean, look at this story. I mean, who would have written something like that? I mean, even if you would say, "Okay, these are Jews guarding Nazis, you wouldn't say, oh, but they were actually refugees from Germany. And at the same time that they are guarding them, their families are being exterminated by these same people. And not only that, like, instead of taking their vengeance, or at least being indifferent to them, they need to serve them and, you know, take care of all their needs. So, like, that's so crazy. We said, okay, how can we ever portray this? Because all we had are audio recordings. And we had 15 still photos from the camp. So just 15. All the rest were burnt and censored and destructed. And obviously, it was a very secret operation because the camp itself didn't even have a name. It was called Post Box Office 1142. And it was really like a a post box office, like in the entrance to the camp.
0: Like a PO box, right? Were there moments that just really stood out for you
1: in this tale? I mean... I might be naive, it's maybe, you know, it shocked only more in myself, but like we as, you know, Israeli Jewish, we were, you know, brought up, educated with this sense of America was always fighting the Germans, the Nazis during World War II. And after World War Two. Things started to shift and then the Cold War came and started the the fight against Russia. And for me, it was shocking to see how in 42 and 43 and 44 during the war, while, you know, the Holocaust was, you know, coming to its peak, the Americans were already, you know, starting their campaign against Russia. And that was the main goal. Back then. And listening to the interviews of the, the Jewish guards interviewing the Germans, I thought they're going to ask them about, OK, what is Hitler's secret weapon? Where is his bunker? How can we invade Germany? But no, they're asking them again and again about, oh, you were fighting on the eastern front. So this Stalin guy, like what kind of tanks does he have? What kind of weapons do the Russians have? And it's so cynical because you understand that the campaign against Russia was full on during the Second World War. And they were just and they were really looking at it as just, I mean, like seeping into the next war. Nobody thought of it as something new that's going to happen later. But, you know, once we finish with the Germans, now we have the Russians. So it's just one big campaign. And. This whole concept of, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. It's, it's very disturbing when, you know, your enemy is a German Nazi and then they become your friends.
0: Right. When you're really confronted with that. Wait, go back. We didn't finish the animation. We didn't complete the animation
1: question. Animation takes time. That's the problem with animation. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. I mean, going back, it's really we had these 15 still photos And we knew that we wanted to bring these stories to life. But just listening to the voices and seeing like an audio tape go around and around it, it just didn't bring like this intimacy. And it was very, very clear to us. We're not going with any kind of, you know, cinematic recreations with actors, because when you deal with anything that has to do with the Holocaust, you can't take any you know, um, I would say creative freedom because you have so many Holocaust deniers and fake news people all out there. They're just waiting for you to, you know, go astray like 2% and then they'll start blasting you with, oh, like, you know, if, if the recreations are not real, maybe the audio is not real, maybe the story didn't happen. And we had that a lot with... As the devil next door, which was insane because with the devil next door, we came out with a show and we actually had the prime minister of Poland send a very, very violent letter to Netflix saying, Change your show this minute. Um, It it started as a whole crazy campaign by Poland saying you can't say that there were concentration camps in Poland because Poland didn't exist back then. It was called general territory. Wow. And as you can see, it's people are really, really just waiting for something that they can grab on to latch on to. So for us, it was very clear that we can't do any kind of cinematic recreations. And the beauty about animation is, on the one hand, you can be very creative and really intimate and bring the story to life. And on the other hand, you tell the audience, hey, look, this is my interpretation of these audio recordings. This is how I see it, obviously, we are not talking about animated characters. It's not documentary evidence. They might have had a different hat on or a different facial expression. But each time we cut to very important historical facts, we cut to real archives to show that these were the real V2 rockets and this was a real von Brown. And obviously imagery from the camps was very important for us not to try and recreate and tone down into... Any kind of animation, but say it is what it is. Just look at it.
0: Hey, it's Jessica Steinberg. If you have an important message you'd like to share with people who care deeply about Israel and the Jewish world, there's really no better way to do that than by advertising in our podcasts. Reach the Times Visual's unique community with an audio ad. For more information, email ads at timesofisrael.com. That's ads at timesofisrael.com.
2: The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing, environmental, scientific...
0: I'm interviewing Daniel Sivan, who with his work and life partner, Morlushi, directed the new animated Netflix short film, Camp Confidential, America's Secret Nazis, recently shortlisted for the Best Documentary Short Oscar. Final nominees will be announced on February 8th, just a few days from now. The 35-minute film is still available on Netflix. And now, back to Daniel Sivan. It reminded me of another recent Holocaust documentary, Love It Was Not, by Maya Sarfati, who also utilizes animation to describe, as she said to me, what doesn't exist. In other words, you just have so little that's out there, and it it allows you to tell the story, as you said, in your way. Were there challenges that you didn't anticipate in terms of the
1: animation? Um, <laughs> with animation, you always expect the worst <laughs> because animation, it's, it's just like every, every person you tell, you know, oh, I'm going to do like an animated film. They just give you that look of sadness of, oh, <laughs> you have no idea what you're getting into. I mean, it takes... Hours and hours and days and days and weeks and weeks just to render it. And like each time we had some kind of like small tweak saying like, oh, like, it's great. We love what you did here. But I mean, maybe you can just like take off like the feather from their hats because it looks ridiculous. And they had like a whole debate and came back to us and said, OK, removing the Feather will delay deadline by 37 days. Oh, my goodness. It will take like 15 computers to render for a week and a half. And then it's like, oh, my God, oh, just leave the Feather in. Wow. So, <laughs> Wow. OK. That's an okay. uh, On On the other hand, it was really such a blessing because it was working with this very, very, very creative team. They're called Little Blackstone and they're Canadian. And they really brought like their own interpretation to our vision. And the collaboration was was fantastic. And again, like it was such an international production. So we had Antonio Pinto and Dudu Aram, which are Brazilian musicians, and like, we've been working with them on several films now, and they're just amazing, like how they interpret, you know, sadness coming from Brazilian music, but you need to give it this Jewish edge of right. somebody that's coming from Germany. And then you have, you know, these Canadians that are uh, really, they they had nothing to do with this part of history. So we needed to tell them, like, hey, like, you know, when they come into a gate, the gate can't be arched because it reminds people of Treblinka. And like, you know, they didn't even have these nuances that, you know, as Jewish Israelis, like, you know, it's when you see people going, you know, in a, in a bus, it's already intimidating. Like, you know, so it's it's everything there was very nuanced, but it was a wonderful experience.
0: Uh, does the Holocaust play into either of your personal family backgrounds? in terms of grandparents or family generally? I mean, is it something, obviously you guys are Israeli, you live in Israel, the Shoah, the Holocaust plays into lots of different things as, as you just referred to, but personally, is it something that, uh, that is more of a personal issue for you? Yeah, of course.
1: I mean, you know, uh, my family, uh, came from, half of them came from Romania, which were going through the war and they went through anti-Semitism, But it was a bit lighter than the other half that came from Berlin. And yeah, the family from Berlin really like, you know, they thankfully escaped on time, but um, distant relatives were murdered there. And more half of her mother's family uh, were exterminated in Poland and she is a daughter of uh, Holocaust survivors. So, I mean, really, that's strikes strike home uh, very close to home. But for us, really, you know, dealing with the Holocaust is never about our personal experiences, because thankfully, you know, we didn't grow up in a very traumatized home, like, you know, people of Uh, An older generation in Israel, which really felt it for us, it's really this constant battle of trying to understand how, how, how was it possible and how did it come to be? And, you know, it's, it's really this endless investigation into the human spirit of trying to understand how this is possible and it always has this other branch which you can start exploring from from when when i was working on the demianuk trial it was about what do you do with testimonies of survivors in a courtroom and how can a legal system really provide justice which is very contradictory when you talk about the demianuk trial and here it's really about this collaboration and national interests, it's coming, clashing head on with justice, because all of these people that were going through P.O. Box 1142 should have been persecuted. They should have paid some kind of price for their crime.
0: Meaning they should never have made it to America?
1: or Maybe they should have made it to America, but they should have been tried. They should have been publicly judged for their crimes. And then, you know, they could have said, okay, this is the part that you did in the Nazi regime, and this is the price you're going to pay, for example. You know, it doesn't need to be death by hanging. It can be also, you know, two months in prison, and now you are out, and now you can start a new life. But instead of that, what happened is the U.S. just whitewashed all of their crimes and in a matter of months, not even years, they became from these murderers or assisting and abating murderers into national heroes. And von Braun really is considered, to this day, an American hero. Wow. And to, and to
0: sort of to come across that information and to realize that, I imagine it's jarring. It uh, It changes the way you think about all of it. I also wanted to ask you, Daniel the two of you deal with a lot of Jewish material. The film's about Israel. Your first feature, I believe, Israel Limited, which takes that skeptical look of the Israel Experience tour program, Censored Voices, which you dug up the audio recordings made by IDF soldiers immediately after the Six-Day War. That didn't exactly jive with the greater narrative of Israel's military triumph. You have the Oslo Diaries, which revealed also never-before-seen footage of the peace negotiators. Do you ever say to yourselves, okay, enough Israel, enough Jews, enough Jewry, let's deal with something completely different. It's hard to live it and to work on it professionally. But at the same time, you are dealing with these subjects that are personal in a sense. Or are they? Yeah.
1: I mean, first of all, you know, that like I, I never saw myself as a, you know, a Jewish filmmaker. <laughs> it's like not, I, I, I never thought of myself as like somebody that deals with like Jewish content, but obviously I am. <laughs> and I mean, as, as the years go by, like I started embracing it because it's really, I, I really feel like, you know, there's a very, very, strong power to tell your own story. Um, And I'll give you an example with like a a movie I'm not proud of. So (laughs) my my first movie was uh, a film called Offside, which was about a Palestinian boy that was living in his own state. It was a short documentary, and he was living between a Jewish settlement named Elkanah and between a Palestinian village named Mascha. And they built the walls, the separation walls, so that actually it, he was detached from his, uh, from his town and he was detached from the settlement. So he's living in a country of his own, which is like, you know, a 100 square foot country. Um, And I told this story and it did extremely well. Like, you know, it was a smash hit in all the festivals and people really loved it. But it was like deeply fake in the sense that the story was told by an Israeli trying to tell the story of this Palestinian boy and the complexities of his family which, you know, his his father was, you know, not the best father in the world. The relationship in his family between his mother and father and himself was complex and interesting and human. But I couldn't bring that because I was watching him only as this very small stereotype of this is a poor boy living under Israeli occupation. And I couldn't bring his complexity because I wasn't, you know, I didn't have like the license to criticize him in any way, being somebody from the outside. And because I couldn't bring his complexity, you don't love him. Because the people you love on camera, uh, when you look, you know, at you know, Woody Allen or the Cohen brothers, like their Jewish characters are flawed. They're not these perfect victims. And I, I'm, I'm a very strong believer in telling your own story, because when you tell your own story, you can be critical, you can be funny. And you can, w- once you're critical and you bring these flaws in characters, people fall in love with them. So, for example, if somebody who wasn't Jewish and wasn't Israeli would do a documentary about the Demianyu case, they would never have been able to bring the character of Yoram Scheftel, which is so flawed and quirky and funny. And people wouldn't have fallen in love with him because they would just bring this character, which is very correct, because they're not Jewish, and they can't, you know, raise these questions. And the other thing about you know, being Jewish, which, again, I am, you know, as, as secular as it gets, and I am really not somebody that, um, uh, um, you know, follows the, the, the law of the Bible. Um, but there are a lot of things in, in Jewish culture, or at least what I hope is Jewish culture, um, which I really, really believe in. And like the biggest one for me is the fact that throughout the ages, thousands of years, um, Jewish people were always questioning everything. They were never going in line with government authority. Um, Unlike, you know, the German culture, which sees obedience as, as a virtue, um, even in the bible you can see the disobedience is always something that is commemorated in in jewish culture and it's always encouraged to ask questions even ask questions you know to god and yourself and life and i think that's what documentaries should do i mean question everything and here for example going back to camp confidential it really is a story about these Jewish refugees that start questioning, like, what are they even doing here for the national interest? And you can see that they're not patriotic at all during the film. They're not saying again and again, we did what was had to be done. We were just following orders. You know, we did great for America. But they were very troubled from within saying, yes, maybe this is the right political thing to do. Maybe this is the right strategic thing to do. But... Yes, it's it's a moral question, and we're going to raise it.
0: And those are the questions clearly that you're looking in uh, every film that you guys do. You're you're raising the questions. You're looking at what the questions are. It seems.
1: Yeah, I mean that said, like, <laughs> it's it's hard to do films about politics, and uh, yes, we are slowly taking more and more times off from politics because it's just so extremely depressing. Yeah. So, yeah. For, for example, like the bridge film was a real vacation for me <laughs> because it was really, wow, okay, amazing. The biggest scandal in the history of bridge, like, yes, bring that. <laughs> you can handle
0: that. That's the kind of scandal you're looking for. Well, Daniel yeah, exactly. Sivan, it has really been such a pleasure to have you. We wish you so much luck, hoping that you jump from the shortlist to the nominee list with Camp Confidential, and
1: we'll be waiting with bated breath to see what happens. Oh, so will I. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I mean, it was a pleasure, you know, mumbling away.
0: <laughs> no mumbling
1: at all. Thank you.
0: Thanks again to Daniel Sivan of Camp Confidential for being with us. As we said, final nominees will be announced on February 8th for the Best Documentary Short Oscar. We wish you the best of luck that Camp Confidential moves into that designation. Camp Confidential is still showing on Netflix. And listeners, we thank you for being with us, and we'll see you next week.
1: Thanks so much for listening to Times Will Tell from the Times of Israel. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein.
0: Please subscribe wherever you find your podcast, and check out our daily briefing news show every Sunday through Thursday.
1: Like what you hear? Consider
0: rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. Until next week. Shalom.
1: Hi, it's Sarah Tuttle Singer from the Times of Israel. Come join our community and support fast and fair independent journalism. You can sign up with the link at the bottom of every single article on the site.